0: Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I'm excited to share these thoughts because, uh, well, let me just uh, begin with a story. So it's it's said about the Kutzke Rebbe, and if you're not familiar with the Kutskarev he he was legendary on so many different levels but one of the things he was legendary for was his ability to put giant like galaxy sized ideas into a single sentence or or thought and and so so with that in mind uh they say that he worked um to, put, to write a one-page book where he would put onto one page everything, everything that he knew or, or everything that needs to be known or whatever his goal was. It was a, a massively ambitious goal to, to put on one page of paper. And they say, now remember, he was perhaps one of the most gifted people to, to, to be able to do such a thing. And they say that he never succeeded. He was never able to put everything that he felt needed to be known on that one one page of paper. And so, but here you see that um, that there there has been this this uh, quest to 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 somehow contain the largest of thoughts in the smallest of places. And I think that more 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 so than ever, perhaps. Our generation is in search of this to be able to just just give me what I need to know and then and then and I'll go forward right so and yet it's very very challenging and and I, I, I often think of the quote I, I heard it in the name of Steve Jobs who said simple is hard and and it really is if you if you've ever been involved in trying to describe um, Uh, A business like you want to start a new business or whatever it is and someone says, well, you tell me what the business is to be able to take a very complex, you know, system and put it into one sentence, not just one sentence, but one sentence that actually resonates with people where they get it. You know, it's it's very, very hard to do. And and in terms of storytelling, I can tell you it's very, very hard. You know, you have you've got stories that are often have an epic sweep that can take place over generations or take place in multiple dimensions. How do you communicate that in the, in the shortest way? So, so, everybody wants to know, or I certainly want to know, what's wrong with the world? <laughs> like what, what if I told you that I could tell you in one sentence what's wrong with the world? Sum up everything, all the problems of everything in one sentence. Like what, w- what would you give for that piece of information? So, so I feel as though I I, I came across that Th- this past week. It's in Tikkunos uh which is a sefer by Rev. Zadok one of the greatest Hasidic masters and a legendary genius himself. Um, and and he was able to explain. Now we know that when when Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava, were in the Garden of Eden, when. When they ate from the Eitz Das, the way the rabbis explain it, the snake the snake got to them. Okay, the, the snake put what's called zuama in inside them. That's the sort of the the technical kabbalistic term, or in just modern parlance, we would say snake poison, right? But what does that mean? It's a mystical idea. What what, what does that mean? In other words, what went wrong in the Garden of Eden? and is still wrong to this day. What what is it? So here's the answer. You ready? And then I'm going to develop this thought further, but I want to give you sort of like the headline first. And it's something that let's just, you should go over it in your head a hundred times, because this is it. Just lay it out. You ready? What the snake did, what the snake poison was, was, it gave us the ability to think that God does not exist in every place. That God isn't everywhere. And do you know what? Everything boils back down to that. I, 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 I asked my, my kids at the table yesterday, I said, what's, what's the one thing wrong with the entire world? And someone said, insecurity. That, that was an interesting answer. I said, well, you know something? That's a, good, that's a good answer, but it doesn't... It's just a symptom of what the real thing is. And then someone else said, lack of belief. And I said, that, that's a great answer too. But again, that's just a symptom of something deeper. So in other words, what I've just told you... Is the root of the root that is the root of the root of all problems is not understanding that God is everywhere or putting it slightly differently that there can be a place where God isn't the thought that a person can have that there is a place where God doesn't exist you see See the mind is ultimately as great as the mind is and the mind is obviously capable of fathoming, you know, just tremendous tremendous thoughts, right? But relative to God, the mind is finite. Right? So So at a certain point the brain maxes out. So if I ask you to grasp fully grasp infinity your brain will hit multiple walls. It just, it can't do it, right? But if you redirect that to saying, well, so in other words, all this will become clear when I tell you one of my favorite Hasidic stories. So I, I heard this in the name of the Chedush He was the first Gerar Rebbe. And, you know, one of these child prodigies, you know, child geniuses. And when he was young, An older rabbi said to him, I'll give you a penny if you can tell me where God is. And he said back to him, I'll give you two pennies if you can tell me where God isn't. Right now, I remember that was I remember being like captivated by that story and thinking, you know, that the young child got the better of the older rabbi. But why exactly? Why? Why was that such a better answer? And this is getting back to what I was trying to share with you before, with the snake detas Okay, you see, I think that the older rabbi, when he said, "I'll give you a penny if you can tell me where God is," I think the answer he was looking for was that God is everywhere, right? But again, the man, the the mind can't grasp the totality of existence. It simply can't. So he said back, I'll give you two pennies if you can tell me where God isn't. In other words, focus your eye. You can't grasp everything, but you you can look over there and 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 you can look over there. And in each of these places, God exists. In other words, you're redirecting from, like, a, if you imagine a, the letter V just sitting on top of your head and ever expanding outwards, right? That's, impossible. you can't do that. But now imagine the letter V, but you're holding each of the sides in your hand like, a, like one of those, um, what are those things called where you, try to, where you try to find water? A divining rod, right? So you're holding that V now, and your point, it's narrowing it down. And you're pointing it in each direction and you're realizing the the infinite exists here and the infinite exists there. There is no place where the infinite doesn't dwell that the mind can grasp. That the mind can grasp. And the snake comes to us and says to us, there is a place where God doesn't exist. And we believe it. And this is the problem with everything in the entire world. (laughs) Everything in the entire world boils down to that. That a person can think, and we all think this because we've all been bitten by the snake, so to speak. Every person has within him this ability to imagine that there is a place where God doesn't exist. An amazing, an amazing, this is amazing. Now, let me tell you something. The Gomorrah says that we got cleansed from this snake bite at Mount Sinai. Okay? Now, unfortunately, it was temporary, <laughs> because we do the sin of the golden calf, and basically, the, the if you study the whole incident of the golden calf, it's basically... Pretty much directly parallel to eating from the tree of knowledge, they're they're very similar events. So we kind of lose it again. But there was this sort of glorious moment where our das, where our where our mind got restored to how it had been before we had been bitten by the snake, poisoned by this delusion that there's any area of life where God doesn't exist. Okay. And by the way, I just, I, I want to tell you a quote. This is like, this is like one of these things, if you actually look it up, you can, you can pretend that you're smart. Okay, so I'm going to pretend that I'm smart right now and tell you about it. It's, um, it's in Vaikra, which is Leviticus, it's uh, chapter 16, verse 16, and, um, and basically you have to look in the Rashi, so you get extra credit, right? <laughs> And, and and what the Rashi tells you is that the Shekhinah, which is means that's sort of a fancy term meaning God's revealed presence, right? That God's presence dwells with us in our impurity. It's a very landmark it's a very landmark Rashi for everyone to know. Because you see, what the Snake inside of us tells us, what, what our Yetzahara tells us, our evil inclination tells us, is that once I'm in a state of impurity, however you want to define that, once I'm in that state, God doesn't descend to that impure level. Because God is holy. So what does God want to be doing in a place that isn't pure? And so then you think to yourself, ah, this is a place where I'm alone. This is a place where God doesn't dwell. That's why this is such an important pasuk, such an important verse, because everyone should know that according to Judaism, God dwells absolutely everywhere, even in a place of impurity. Very, very important, very, very important. So at Mount Sinai, God spoke. And I heard Rabbi Adin Seinsalt say something so beautiful. He said, for thousands of years, People had been speaking to God. And at Mount Sinai, God spoke back. Right? That's what was so awesome about Mount Sinai. God spoke back so that everybody could hear him. Remember, that's what distinguishes Judaism from all other religions. From all other religions. Every other religion claims a prophet who then says to his disciples, trust me. Right? Judaism had... 2.5 million witnesses to hearing the voice of God simultaneously. They all heard it, and they all heard the same thing. This is unprecedented. No other religion would have the chutzpah, would dare to say such a thing, because it's so easy to disprove. And yet Judaism says it, and look, look around the world. What do you have? Jews. Like, where did they come from? They're all children of the people at Mount Sinai. How is it that every empire has decided at a certain play, I know, I know what we should do. Of course, we should do, use our power to crush and wipe out the Jews. Of course, what are, we've been dallying. Let's get down to business. And every empire throughout history has failed. Why? Why? Because the Jews are integral to God's plan in this world. Because we were at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was real. God made a covenant with us that he's never letting us go. And here we are today. So when God spoke at Mount Sinai, this was one of the things that cleansed the snake poison from us. In other words, again, what was the snake poison? So Reb Cohen is saying that it's this thought, this consciousness, this belief, this instinct, right? Because it's deep. It's not just a thought. It's deep in us. It's an instinct. It's this instinct that there is a place where God doesn't dwell. That there is a place that's absent of God. And of course, the Gemara teaches us that when God spoke at Mount Sinai, that that our souls flew out of our bodies. So what we were able to experience was that not only does God fill this entire world, but that he also fills other dimensions. Whatever exists, whatever is in existence, that's where God is. That's God fills all dimensions of reality. So that was part of the cleansing. And then I'll tell you something else. One of my all-time favorite teachings, it's a medrash explained by Lubavitcher Rebbe. It says like this: It's a very curious idea, but brilliantly explained. That when God spoke at Mount Sinai, there was no echo. Now, what does that mean? There was no echo. So, you know, imagine you're standing in the Alps and you yell "Hello," and then you hear "Hello, hello, hello, hello," right? I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. So, what? Why? Because your voice waves bounce off something that it's not. In this case, a a slab of mountain. Okay? But now think about it. When God spoke at Mount Sinai, there was no echo. What are the rabbis trying to teach us? So the Lubavitcher Rebbe explains that since there is nothing that isn't God, (laughs) what was there to bounce off of? Because God fills all existence. And remember, again, when we say, when the, the hallmark of Judaism, right, is God is one. One God. We don't say, very important, we don't say our God is stronger than your God. We say there is no other God. There is no other power. There's only Hashem. That's it. So when God spoke at Mount Sinai, there was no echo, because there was nothing for it to bounce off of. Meaning to say, again, There is no place devoid of godliness. Now with this in mind, I want to say the following couple of thoughts. One is, you know, I don't know if you know this, but the way the Gemara derives the fact that there's 613 mitzvahs is through a very interesting gematria. It's a mathematical calculation. Because, you know, there are different different, uh, enumerations of what the 613 mitzvahs are. You've got the Uh, the Smog, right? You've got the Rambam, you've got the Ramban, you've got different countings of the mitzvahs. The Sefer Mitzvahs, okay? So, but everyone agrees with one thing. There's 613 of them. Okay, how exactly to number them? Okay, they're they're mostly in agreement, but every once in a while you'll you'll, you'll see a bit of a disagreement. Is it a mitzvah to dwell in uh, Eretz Yisrael? Well, if you go there, it's you're definitely keeping a mitzvah. According to the Ramban, you have a chiyuv. You have an absolute commandment to dwell in the land. According to the Rambam, if you go, it's a mitzvah, but you don't have to go. Okay, so, so you have slight differences in the countings. That's one example of them. Um, is there a mitzvah to believe in God? Well, the first commandment, Anochi Hashem el-okecha, That's what Hashem spoke first at Mount Sinai. I am God, your God. The the Rambam says, that's the mitzvah to believe in God. The Ramban says, you know what? You can't have a mitzvah to believe in God because that's the idea that fuels the entire enterprise. So these are subtle nuances, right? But everyone agrees that there are 613 mitzvahs. How do they derive it? So the rabbis Say well, what's the gematria of the word Torah? And the answer is six hundred and eleven. And then from that they derive that God spoke the first two commandments at Mount Sinai. That's where the thought comes from that the first two were said by God. So you have six hundred and eleven plus the two God, the first two commandments that God said, and that brings you to six hundred and thirteen. That's the Gemara, okay. Now, within those utterances, those first two, contain the entire Torah, by the way. Okay? (laughs) But anyway, now we're getting deeper. And in fact, everything was contained within the Aleph of Anochi, within the first letter of the first word. And now, if you want to get even more way out in Kabbalistic, the letter Aleph, which God pronounced, because some say that God only pronounced the letter Aleph, the letter Aleph is silent. (laughs) So God... (laughs) Pronounce the unpronounceable, and within that was contained absolutely the entire Torah. Okay, let's take a few steps back. <laughs> so, and the Gemara says that the first two utterances were said by God at Mount Sinai. Okay, now let's, we're we're trying to explain Ripsadik, or I'm trying to explain Ripsadik here. Remember, what does he say? What did the snake put in us? What's the entire problem with the world? What's the problem with everything? It all boils down to one thing, the root of the root of the root. What is it? That we think that there's a place where God doesn't exist. Or we think that God isn't everywhere. However you want to say it. If you either want to say, right, if you either want to take the penny from the older rabbi and say that God is everywhere, where is God? Or if you want to be really, really smart and say, no, 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 I want to go double or nothing. I want to go for the two cents. There is no place without God. So now, with that in mind, let's look at the two commandments that Hashem said at Mount Sinai. The first commandment is, I'm God. Alright? That that means, this is me speaking right now, but that means God is everywhere. What's the second commandment? No idols. No idols. That means there is no place without me. Right? I don't there is no other God filling in those other holes, right? And of course, on a deep level, I learned from Rabbi Moshe Shapiro, Shalom, that idol worship is just a way, it's just a game, basically, where you erect some sort of idol and pray to it. But, but the real psycho-spiritual dynamic of it is making yourself into God. That, that's really what's going on. Because remember, just think about it. What do you do when when you make an idol? First of all, you choose the idol. So who's the idol really working for? Right? Okay? Who's really the God in this? But there's part of you that wants to supplicate because we have this part of us that knows that there's something above us. So we have this need to serve, which is, by the way, very appropriate and not something to be ashamed of or embarrassed of. See, the world wants to humiliate you and tell you the fact that you feel as though a debt of gratitude to something larger than you is something that you should be ashamed of. Hey, you're running the show. This is America. We've got CEOs. It's the cult of the CEO, right? What, you're not president? All right, so make up an organization and you can be president of that, (laughs) right? Who's stopping you from being president, so so there's a shame. You mean I'm, I'm, I'm working for someone? I'm serving someone? Yes! The master of the universe! <laughs> of course! Use your brain! You think... Look around! You think you made this? Who made this? Not you! So, so I want to give you another example of Moshe, how Mount Sinai, remember the Gomorrah, says that this... This idea that God is in everywhere, God fixed at Mount Sinai. So we're giving a few we're giving a few examples of this. All right, let's just review. One, God spoke, and there was no echo, and our souls flew out of our bodies. So multiple dimensions. We saw that God exists everywhere, right? Certainly in in, in this domain. God also showed us not only is He. Everywhere, but there's no place without him. That's the first two commandments. Now I want to say another thought that came to me, which is Moshe. Where do you see it in the word Moshe? Because Moshe is the one that the Torah is communicated through, and so therefore he is the snake poison extractor, right? He's the doctor. So you should see it in the doctor's name, this thought. So I want to say the following. When we see the letter He in Torah, He stands for this dimension that we inhabit, okay? If you want to be fancy, we'll call it malchus. If you want to be super fancy, we'll call it olamasiyah, the world of action. That's the name of this sphere that we inhabit. Now, when you take the name of Hashem, and I always recommend doing this, making sort of a ladder out of it, where you have Yud at the very top, that's the upper, upper highest regions, beyond, 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 and then beneath that, the letter He, and then beneath that, the letter vav, and then the bottom hay. That bottom hay stands for this realm, OK? So the name of God is sort of a map of the universe. But understand that God fills the world, but also exists infinitely beyond it, right? You never want to say that God is the world and the world is God, because that's actually heresy. Actually, be excommunicated for that. <laughs> okay? Back in the good old days, you would be excommunicated for that thought. And you'd say, Well, I'm just trying to be very spiritual. God fills the whole world. So, so God is the world, and the world is God. Get out! <laughs> no. This is just a fragment of God. A fragment. God fills the world, every aspect of the world, and dimensions beyond, infinitely beyond. Okay. But this realm is signified by the letter He, which is the bottom letter in Hashem's name. Okay. Okay. Good. Now let's look at the name Moshe. So Moshe is Mem Shin Hey, and and if you rearrange Shin and Mem, it spells Sham, which means there. So. So, Moshe's name, remember, what, what are we trying to fix? The idea that God doesn't exist everywhere. We have, to, we have to fill ourselves with the knowledge, bless you, that God exists everywhere, that there's no place without God. So what's Moshe's name? sham Hay. There. Like, hey, is this dimension. God is there. 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 You see how the name Moshe is correcting the problem of the snake poison, right? And now, if you want to get really wild, this is more of a way out kind of thing. You know, look at the letter Mem. Its opening is on the bottom. Look at the letter Shin. Its opening is on the top. So it's pointing in every direction that God is there, right? Because that's really the essence of everything. But I want to show you more how it, it, it involves our life. Okay, now again, I'm drawing from Reb Coin. and there are two sort of um, there are two opposing forces, very great opposing forces um, uh, in the Torah that, uh, that try to up, that try to implant this idea in us, that God isn't everywhere. In other words, they're sort of emissaries of, they're snake-poisoned purveyors, purveyors of fine snake poison since the year zero. (laughs) These snake poison purveyors (laughs) are known by the names Amalek and Bilaam. Amalek is sort of the, the nation that's at, at you know, deadly odds with the people of Israel, they, they they seek to destroy us. Haman, the the villain from the from Purim, is uh, is from the nation of Amalek. You Amalek attacked us in the desert from the rear and just tried to wipe us out, just a sneak attack. And what Amalek is all about is the idea of happenstance, or coincidence. See, do you you understand how coincidence ties into what we've been discussing up until now? What is a coincidence? A coincidence is by gum. It just happened. But do you understand how that suggests in a very profound, nefarious way that there was a place where God wasn't dwelling? There was a vacuum, and in that vacuum just happened to fall a green sock and another green sock. But how could that be if there's no place without God? How could a coincidence be? Now, I'm going to tell you something intense. There's this word carry, and we're going to get into other meanings of carry. It's a it's a sort of intense word. Carry can mean coincidence. It also can be um, the accidental release of semen in your sleep, right? Like someone who goes through that is called a bal carry. So, in Torah, that's not considered a great thing. And 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 this word carry. Means coincidence, but the root is it's kuf resh yud. Okay, now isn't it interesting that this word, which means coincidence, or this release, right, unintentional, has has the root kuf resh which is kar, which means cold. So let's let's dwell on the idea of. So of coincidence, right? Because the, the other definition is more for billum. We'll get to that later. Um, so, so if you think that there are coincidences, Kuf, Resh, Yud, coincidences, do you know why? It's because of Kuf, Resh, Kar, cold, because your heart is cold. Your heart has become cold. And that's why you think that there's a place where God doesn't exist. See, again, these are the most far-reaching thoughts that I'm sharing with you right now. You see, I don't think, and many people say this, I'm not the only one who says this, and I say this with total respect, by the way. That everyone believes in God. Okay? Now, there will be people who will adamantly disagree with that statement. Adamantly. And feel as though, adamantly to the point where they feel as though they've been fundamentally disrespected by that statement. Who are you to tell me that I believe in God? When I'm telling you, I don't believe in God. Are you listening to me? Are you respecting me? But I think if you engage someone, when they're open, in private, and you're speaking about it, bless you, and you're not debating, right? That's very, very important. You're not debating. You're just talking, and you're just sharing. I think everyone will have a glimmer of an instance of a moment, and they don't have to use the word God. They don't have to use the word God. Where they'll say, yes, it seems like there's something more going on. However, whatever words they can muster in order to express a glimmer of that thought, every person in their own language will put it in a way that if you hear the words behind the words, they're saying there's something else. So if everyone believes, then, how, then, then what's going on with what our initial statement was? Our initial premise is that people think what the snake put in us was the ability to think that there's a place where God isn't. But if you're telling me that everyone under the sun believes, then how do you reconcile those two thoughts? And so now we're back to car and carry coldness and coincidence because what's going on is that people do believe that there is a force out there they just don't believe that God is involved in their lives right that's that's the game changer that's the game changer and that's that's the conversation that needs to take place ultimately between a person and themselves. Because I think the base level belief everyone has, it's really that second stage that's the critical stage. Do you understand that God is involved in your life? And not in just in your life, in every aspect of your life. And now I'm going to tell you another another just major major idea from Reb Tzaddik. He says that the next thing that the snake did to us was after he gave us the ability to think that there's a place void of God that went hand in hand with that instinct, because it's a, it's deep. It's deep in us. It's not just a fleeting thought. It's deep in us, right? Is the thought that we're no longer able to see the good of God in everything. See, it's so these ideas are so important to me because if you think about it, these are things that I've been talking about for the longest time, but Reb Sadek put them all together in one place, and he created a cause and effect out of all of them. You see, because what's blocking most people, and this is me talking right now, from seeing the good in everything is because there's a fundamental disconnect between what I want and what I get. And so people think that what I want is good. Everyone, and, and it's a normal instinct. What, you know, I'm not a drug addict. I'm not like ready to jump off a building. I'm not holding up 7-Elevens. Like, I'm a good guy. What, what I want isn't so terrible. But, but, but God has an intelligence beyond ours. God sees past lives. God sees fe- the future. God sees every aspect of everything. And God gives us exactly 100% of his good all of the time. But it's very, very hard to reconcile that when I'm deeply invested in something that I'm not getting. And so, therefore, I'm blinded from seeing the good. Now, remember, let me define good for you, because it's very important that, we, that we're speaking the same language. There are two types of good, and I would redefine it and put it in these terms. There's good and there's sweet. Okay, now, you know, if, if you hang around Jewish circles on, on Rosh Hashanah on the new year, people will re- wish, wish you a good, sweet year. They always throw in the word sweet, and of course we have a very, excuse me, very famous custom to dip an apple in the honey on the first night of, uh, of the New Year, of Rosh Hashanah. So what's this whole idea of the honey, like sweet? It sounds like very childish, like, oh, it's cute, you know, honey, sweet, you know. But no, it's, it's actually very, very deep. You see, you have good, and then you have sweet. What is sweet? Sweet is revealed good. See, there's like, wait a second, you got married to the person you wanted to get married to? That's sweet. That's great. You, you, you just got that job you've been working so hard to get? That, that's what we would call revealed good. That's sweet. But everything is good. Even the good that the entire world will call bad. And now it's up to you. Do you want to make the conscious choice in your life to decide everything is good? Even the good that the world calls bad. Now, I just want to be clear. Don't don't misunderstand me. It's just sort of like, people are starving in the Sudan. Yay! well, didn't you just hear what he said? He said, that's good. Okay, you call it bad, but I call it good. No, don't, don't be a fool. Don't be an idiot. It's not what I'm saying. If there's injustice, you work against injustice. It's there for you to solve. It's there for you to do something about. But again, if you want to make a direct correlation between whether there's goodness and correlating it with whether your desires are being met. That's the area really to focus on. Is it possible that I didn't get what I wanted and that could still be the goodness of God? So the answer is yes. And the answer is also the snake putting us the inability to see that. And that we actually have to work to overcome that. Because when we are infected with the delusion that there are places where God isn't, that goes hand in hand with not being able to see that God is good. And remember again, the Rashi from Vaikra 1616, God dwells with us even in our impurity. Even in those places where you think God is not, the Shekhinah is there as well. Okay. So again, a tells us that everything is by coincidence. And coincidence necessitates the idea that there was an absence of God in that place, and two things just fell together, that match. And the only way that we're susceptible to believing in coincidence, carry, the root of carry is kar, which means cold, is that our hearts got cold. Right? That's why it's so important. That's why what Chasidis, the Hasidic Revolution, came to fix. Was it's trying to warm the hearts of people, open the hearts of people. Right? All right, now let's get to Bilam, And this gets very intense. This gets very intense now. Now remember, Kabbalistically speaking, you have this line of incarnations. All right? You have this snake from the Garden of Eden becoming Lovin, who tries to wipe out the Jewish people right at the onset of the Jewish people, right when Yaakov, Jacob, is forming his family. He's trying to uproot the entire family before it can exist. And then you have Bilim, who's the incarnation of Lovin. Okay, so it goes right back to the snake in the Garden of Eden. So the Bilam energy is the snake energy. So now let's figure out what Bilam is doing. So the Gomorrah, an amazing page of Gomorrah, if you want to see it. It's uh, page uh, Lamed Aleph, Aleph 31a, in, in Masechted Nida. It's got a lot of the landmark Torahs that you've heard over the years are all kind of on this page, okay? Or many of the great teachings are all on this page. Lesser well-known, but very important, is this is this teaching, which is trying to explain what this very mysterious expression in the Chumash, in the Torah, is saying when Billam refers to himself as as he says, I am speaking with an open eye in the singular. What is that referring to? That he's got got an open eye in the singular. Okay, so the Gomorrah explains something that you never would guess. Like in a million years, you would never, ever, ever come up with this. But the Gomorrah is going to explain it. Now remember, when it says that Hashem gave prophecy to Bilam. Bilam was going; could have been the guy. He could have been the guy. Now he was a very great prophet. He was the greatest of the prophets of the non-Jews, and the clearest prophecy about Mashiach in the Torah—that a that a, a, a descendant of the Jewish people is going to come—actually comes from the mouth of one of our greatest enemies, Bilam. So if you're Enemies are saying great things about you. Then they have even more weight, right? So Bilaam had a destiny which he blew. He blew. But imagine, let's just paint it out so you understand how how great Bilaam was. See, Bilaam, one of the ways that he had prophecy, and again, this is getting into the dark arts, and I don't even pretend to understand this, but I'm just telling you, okay? He would have relations with his donkey, Okay, and somehow that would bring him into this mystical state where he was able to to bring down like pieces of information. Okay? Now, if you asked him, "Are you having a sexual relationship with your donkey?" this is just me talking, but I think he would respond, "You disgusting human being what 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 do you?" That's what you think that I'm doing? And it's, dude, that is exactly what you're doing, you know? But if you asked him, (laughs) I'm sure he was telling you, I am probing the deepest levels of reality. And this is, just happens to be one of the steps in terms of transmitting it. How dare you? And yet, he's just lying to himself. So, Bilaam was a debased personality. But that was going to be, had he fulfilled his destiny, an aspect of his actual greatness. Because you see, from that place of having done everything under the sun, he could have come to the rest of the nations of the world. And everyone would have related to him. The lowest of the low. Anyone, like the biggest gangster, would have been able to relate to him. And he could have said, Hashem is real. There's one God. It's the God of the Jewish people. It's all unite. We're all God's children. Let's all unite. And he would have been able to do that. You understand? Because of his lowness, he would have been able to rise to such a great place and everyone would have connected with him. The lowest of the low would have connected with him. But he was too self-interested. In the end, he wanted what he wanted. And it's so twisted. Just read Parsha's Billam, one of the most amazing and most accessible things like he asks, God, should I do this? And God says, no, you shouldn't do it. And then he says, are you sure I shouldn't do it? And then God says, well, if you want to do it, you can do it. Do you see how twisted it's already getting? He already asked, God, should I do it? God said, no, don't do it. But God, are you sure I shouldn't do it? Well, if you want to do it, you can do it. You see how God takes you in the direction that you want to go. So again, if you said to him, you're just serving yourself, he'd say, I'm talking to God. Did you? Do I have to quote what God said to me just a second ago? He's not talking to you, right? He's talking to me. And he just said to me, if you want to go, you can go. Ah, but what about that first conversation you had with him? So, why is Billam speaking with only one eye? What happened to the other eye? You ready? So, when God would speak to Bilaam, the Torah uses the word "kari," which means happenstance. Like it just, God didn't want to honor him with this notion of a direct visitation, like He does with with Moshe Rabbeinu. See, this is the amazing. This is the amazing thing. The word "vayikra" is also the word "carry, Okay, but it has a little aleph at the end. Because God wants, and, and Moshe just wanted the word carry just like Billam had it, because this was Moshe's humility. Moshe just wanted it to be, oh yeah, just God came to me also, you know. Um, but Hashem said, no, put the letter Aleph at the end of it. You know, Aleph stands for God. Aleph is the number one. God is one. Gal, Aleph is made of three letters, two yuds and a vav, which total 26, which is the gematria of the yud kei vav ke, God's holiest name. So Aleph stands for God. God says, no, put the Aleph at the end. I want to distinguish your prophecy from the prophecy of Bilam. Your prophecy is greater. And so Moshe, with reluctance, writes the letter Aleph, but famously he writes a small Aleph because of his humility, Moshe's humility. right? And I want to say on this, and there's books of Torah written about this small Aleph, but that after this, that that everything occurs to you in this world because it's a world of lies or as Kakoin quotes from an ancient holy Jewish book you ready for this? It's a beautiful world without eyes. Isn't that awesome? We inhabit a beautiful world without eyes because we don't have the eyes to see that God is absolutely everywhere. And so it's keri. Vayikra is keri with a small olive, because it looks like it's all keri. It's all coincidence. You have to look closely to see the olive. You have to look closely to see that actually, no. There's an olive there, that God is there. But that requires your looking at and your seeing it and a choice that you make. And you have to decide. And you can decide to correlate your heart and your mind with the truth, which is that God is everywhere. That's a choice you can make in your life. You can make that conscious decision, and then you align yourself with the truth. Everyone is just waiting around, waiting to be convinced. Convince me, convince me. But you don't understand. The world was created in a way that's waiting for you to make a decision to choose. Because otherwise you're gonna be waiting for the knock on the door for the rest of your life. And you say, well, where was the knock? Where was the knock? Are you joking me? Every single breath you took was a knock. Every, every blink of your eye was a knock. All right, so why does he only have one eye? So now get ready. We said that Kerry. Also, stands for sperm, if you will. I'll say zera from now on. That's the more Torah term for it. Okay. So Bilam, in his expanded consciousness, which he had, that was legitimate, that was real. In his expanded consciousness, Bilam was looking at the zera of Israel, meaning to say, in this heavenly sphere, where conception takes place on a mystical level he was watching the zera and he was watching the zera as it as it meets the egg as it as 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 conception takes place and he saw that hashem is watching the same thing that Hashem is also supervising this level of creation and is actively involved in this level of creation. And Bilam says to God, Hashem, the Holy One, is it appropriate for you to be viewing such things? Now, again, this is me talking, but this is your classic case of projection. (laughs) Billam, in his perversion, is looking at Hashem supervising the creation and propagation of the world, of the nation of Israel, of the destiny of existence, and he's projecting his own filth on God, and God blinds him. Meaning to say, God is saying, you think you're seeing, but you're not seeing. So what is God looking at? So I'm telling you from the Gomorrah. God is is waiting for another tzaddik to come into the world. That's what it says. God is taking such pleasure that another righteous, holy person is about to come into the world. And by the way, so you say, well, how do you define tzaddik? Like a rebbe? Right? At Sudeikis? Is that what we're talking about? So if you look earlier in the page, it talks about how when every single one of us is born, man, woman, every single person, when we're born, an angel comes to us at the moment of our birth and makes us swear that we'll be righteous. That we'll be at tzaddik. So it's talking about every single one of us. So So now let's take a few steps back. And then the Gomorrah goes even further. (laughs) It says, who got your parents together to begin with? That was also God. Now, that's intense. Let me put it together and we'll finish up. The snake wants to tell you that there's a place where God doesn't exist. That's the root of all the problems in the world. The Torah is coming to fix that. Right? The Torah is telling you, like the name of Moshe, Shamhe, God is there, God is there, God is there, God is there. Amalek wants to tell you that there's such a thing as coincidence in your life. But that just means carry and card. That just means that your heart has become cold. Open your heart. Sing, dance. Go to the aquarium. Do what needs to be done. (laughs) Take a crowbar. (laughs) Do something. Watch a cat video on YouTube. (laughs) Do what it needs to be taken to open up your heart. Now, Bill wants to tell you, you ready for this? Listen to this escalation. Unbelievable. Not only are the things in your life a coincidence, but you're a coincidence. that that God wasn't looking or shouldn't have been looking or was looking in a strange way when you were conceived. No. No, your conception was the holiest thing in the world and God also brought your parents together. Meaning God has been planning for and anticipating your arrival into this world long before you even appeared on the scene. God was planning and arranging for your arrival in this world for you to do what you need to do. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.